to help pay for my seminary education, I sold paintings, not at a place like World Market or Michael's. I sold some of my own paintings that I had painting, and sometimes I couldn't part with one of my original paintings because they're like my babies. So if someone saw one of my paintings and said, hey, I want that, then I would just reproduce it. I would just paint a new one just like the original. I would reproduce it and make a copy And I didn't just reproduce my own paintings, I actually reproduced paintings by famous artists, and I tried desperately to find some pictures to show you, because someone asked about that, and I couldn't find any. This is back when you actually took pictures with the thing called a camera, and you had to take it in and get it developed. Now it would be on my phone, but I don't know where these pictures are. I took a few pictures, I'm sure, of reproductions of famous paintings that I had painted, but I couldn't find any. But here's how it worked. I had a school bill to pay while in seminary, and my clients had famous paintings that they wanted. They couldn't afford an original Picasso, so I would reproduce it for them at a much cheaper price. A much cheaper price. I was a starving artist and a starving seminary student. A double whammy. So if someone wanted a Picasso, I would crank one out so that I could pay my school bill. And I actually did reproduce a famous painting by Picasso once. I painted the old guitarist for a man who wanted to give it to a, as a gift to his son. And I used that money to pay for my seminary school bill and to put some food on the table. Here's a picture of Picasso's painting, The Old Guitarist. I'm sure you've seen this painting before. It's a famous painting. The Old Guitarist is one of my favorite paintings by Picasso. And when I finished the reproduction of this, I didn't want to get rid of it because I thought I'd done a pretty good job of painting it. I wanted a Picasso hanging in my house. But I had a school bill to pay, so I had to let go of the old guitarist. There's actually a reproduction of the old guitarist on one of my favorite TV shows, the classic TV show, Bewitched. Do you remember Bewitched? Our family loves to watch that show. And on Bewitched, hanging right above the fireplace of Darren and Samantha Stevens, there's a reproduction of Picasso's painting, The Old Guitarist. But there's a problem with the painting, and it's not that it's a bad reproduction. It's actually a decent reproduction of The Old Guitarist. The problem is that it's not hanging upright. It's not hanging the way it's supposed to be. They have the painting hanging sideways. And so here's a screenshot of the old guitarist from that show, and he's leaning on his side, which would be a very uncomfortable way to play guitar. That's not how Pablo Picasso meant for that painting to be hung. No one plays guitar like that. But aside from that, it's a decent reproduction but it's not the original. A copy of a Picasso is nice, especially if you don't have several million dollars to spare. A copy of the old guitarist is nice if you want one hanging up in your house, but it's not the original. In a similar way, the audience of the book of Hebrews had the original, but they wanted a copy. They wanted a reproduction They had Jesus. 
the eternal Son of God, the one who was loved by God the Father in eternity past, and they wanted to go back to the past, but not go all the way back into eternity past when God the Father was loving his son. No, they wanted to go back to the past, back to the old covenant. They wanted to go back to the law. They failed to see that all of the ceremonial laws and all of the rituals and all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were all pointing to and were fulfilled by and in Jesus Christ. They wanted a copy and not the original. Which is why the preacher of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 8 about the old covenant, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the rituals. He says this in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 5 through 7. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All of the old covenant tabernacle elements were a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. They were all pointing to Jesus, but the Hebrews lost sight of this. They needed to be reminded that Jesus is better. They needed to be reminded that Jesus mediates a better covenant that is enacted on better promises. They needed someone to tell them that Jesus is better. They needed someone to tell them that the original is better than the copy. They needed someone to tell them that Jesus is God's perfect, uninterrupted, I love you. That's the good news that we will and that we need to hear today. And we need to hear it every day. And that's exactly what the audience of the book of Hebrews needed to hear. So let's look at God's word now in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 3, still, hear the word of the Lord. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God's perfect, uninterrupted, I love you. Now, I stole our big idea today from John O'Linebaugh, a seminary professor who recently left Knox Seminary. Now he's teaching at Cambridge. And what John O said can be found behind the, ver- the words of verse three. And so you might be thinking, how in the world do you get that big idea from this verse. How in the world do you get that? Jesus is God's perfect, uninterrupted, I love you, from the phrase, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Well, let me explain. Because if you've been with us over the last few weeks and month or so, then you know that we have seen that God is love, that fundamentally and foundationally, God is love. He is not first creator, He is not first 
ruler, God is first and foundationally love. As 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love. And we know that this is true because what was God doing before he ever created anything? What was God doing in eternity past before he had the chance to express his anger? What was God doing in eternity past before he had the chance to express his patience? What was God doing in eternity past before he had the opportunity to be merciful and not give people what they deserve? What was God doing in eternity eternity past before he had the opportunity to be gracious and give people things they don't deserve? What was God doing before he ever created anything? What was God doing before he ever created those weird angels that are described in Isaiah chapter 6? Now, they sound weird to us, but I think that they think we're weird because we have sinned. They haven't, and we have sinned, and so then they probably look at us and say, I can't believe you guys walked away from the Lord. Well, what was God doing before he created those weird creatures? Let me read about them. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. They had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So what was the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit doing before he created the seraphim, these weird-looking angelic beings that use two wings to cover their faces and two wings to cover their feet and then flap around his throne with the other two wings? What was God doing? And what was the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit doing before he created those weird-looking creatures that John tells us about in Revelation chapter 4? Let me read it. Revelation 4, 6 through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. What was the Trinitarian God doing before he created these four creatures that have numerous eyes on the front side of their body and numerous eyes on the back side of their bodies and numerous eyes on the insides of their wings and numerous eyes on the outside of their wings? What in the world was God doing before he created all of these weird creatures that worship him and fly around his throne? Here's what God was doing. He was loving. God the Father was loving his son Jesus in and through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was loving his Father in return in and through the Holy Spirit. In eternity past, before God created anything, before he created these weird looking beings that fly around his throne and look like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle, before he ever created these strange looking creatures that sound like they might be in the new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens, before God was ever a creator, before God was ever a ruler, he was loving. 
He was loving his son Jesus and Jesus was loving his father in return in and through the Holy Spirit. And that's why I told you several weeks ago, that's why God in his essence is not a law giver, but a lover. Yes, the law, the 10 commandments are an expression of his moral character, of who he is in his holiness, but he is not in his essence a law giver. He is a lover. God is fundamentally and foundationally love. And that's why when I read the phrase in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why when I read that, I can say that Jesus is God's perfect, uninterrupted, I love you. Why? Because Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He beams forth the glory of God. He radiates forth the weightiness and the heaviness of God's love for sinners like us. And because God was loving in eternity past, and it was God's eternal plan to create a people that he would redeem, then even from eternity past, Jesus was God's perfect uninterrupted, I love you. And we see this in Ephesians chapter one. Let me read verses four through six. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So Jesus is God's eternal uninterrupted, perfect, I love you. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children. And all of this took place in eternity past when God was doing what he fundamentally is, and that's loving. God's eternal being is love. And God's essence, his nature, his being led him to send his son Jesus for sinners like us. So since God's essence and nature is fundamentally and foundationally love, then it makes sense that he would send Jesus. God the Father has this unique and quite dazzling, intense love for his son. And because he is love, he wants to share that love with his creation. So God the Father sends his son Jesus, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature? First, let's look at the word imprint. In the past, when they would make coins, they would stamp the emperor's image into the coin, much like our pennies and nickels, dimes and quarters. And the stamp or the imprint of the image that was put onto the coin is the word that's used here for imprint in verse three. So the coin would have the exact imprint of the emperor. If you looked at the coin, you saw the emperor's image. In the same way, Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father. In other words, if you see Jesus, 
You see God. He is the exact image of God. That's what our scripture reading out of John 14 was about. They're saying, show us the Father. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you? If you see me, you see the Father because he is the exact imprint of God the Father's nature, his essence, his being. But Jesus just isn't an image like a stamp put into a coin. Jesus is God. He actually is God. He is God's eternal son. He is of the same essence or nature as God the Father. In fact, that's what the preacher of Hebrews says. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The word that's used here for nature is the Greek word hypostasis. Hypostasis, it kind of sounds like a weird disease that you might catch, you know? Like, did you hear about Fred? Yeah, he got the hypostasis. It's bad. He's going to be out of commission for a while. Actually, even though it sounds like a disease you might catch, it's actually a very wonderful Greek word that's made up of two Greek words. The first word, hupo, which means under. We get our, our English word, hypodermic needle, from this, a, a under-the-skin needle, needle, hupodermic, hypodermic. So hupo means under. And the other part of the word for nature here is the word stasis, which means to stand, the root word is also used in 1 Timothy 3, 4 when it says the qualifications of elders or pastors are that they manage their household well. That Greek word there, manage, has part of the word stasis to stand in it. And it's joined by the word before. So it literally means that elders and pastors are called to stand before their families, which I think means they're called to protect them. They stand before them and protect anything from coming against them. You stand before your family. Well, that word stand is used here in Hebrews 1.3, and it's joined by the word under. So it literally means stand under. And it carries the idea of a foundation, having something solid to stand on, having something solid underneath your feet so that you can stand Here's how it's translated in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old uh, Testament in Psalm 69.2. It says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold, where there is no hypostasis, where there is no foundation. So what David is saying in Psalm 69 is that there's no foundation. There's nothing firm beneath him to stand upon. So the word stasis has the idea of standing, being able to stand upon a firm foundation. So when the preacher of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, he's saying that Jesus represents what is foundational to God. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, God's being, God's essence, what is foundational to God. And what have we already learned that God is foundationally and fundamentally? He is love. God's innermost being, who he is, is that he is loving and he gives and he shares. He fundamentally is love and therefore he fundamentally gives and shares. And what is the proof of his love? The proof of his giving? The proof of his sharing? The proof of his giving nature? Jesus is. 
God the Father so delighted in his son Jesus that he just couldn't keep their love to himself. He had to create so that he could share this love. He had to send his son to redeem sinners so that they could get caught up in and be swept away by the love that God the Father has for his son. This is why Jesus came, so that we would get swept up in their eternal love and bask in it and enjoy God for who he is is do you enjoy God do you enjoy him enjoy being with him enjoy thinking about him this is why Jesus goes out from the father so that the love that the father has for his son might be shared with others God's very nature, his essence, his being is outgoing, moving out to others in love, which is why God made the first move to bring us to him, because we would never make the first move. You see, in order to understand the gospel, you must understand this about God, that he is, in his essence, someone who loves. You must see him as Jesus has made him known. And that's why Jesus came, to make known God the Father. To show us that God the Father loves and that God the Father is love. Which is exactly what Jesus says in John 17. So if you don't believe what I'm saying, let me share with you what Jesus said. And then you can take it up with him, okay? About God being love. I think he knows. Jesus says this in John 17, 20 to 26. Which the high priestly prayer Jesus is essentially saying goodbye to the disciples. And what does he focus on and pray about? He says, God, I want the love that we share to be in them. I want them to know your love. He says this, I do not ask for these only, those disciples that were with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's pause there. I want them to know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. Can you believe right now, Christian, that God loves you just like he loves his son? Tell me, how much does he love his son? His heart just pumps and moves and beats so fast when he sees his son. He loves his son. It's his beloved son. And Christian, that's how God feels about you right now. Jesus says, this is why you sent me. Help them to understand that you sent me so that they would know that you love them as much as you love me. Continuing his prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I'm gonna keep telling them who you are, God, so that they know that the love that you have for me 
that it will be in them, that it'll resonate in their hearts, that they'll believe it, that they'll get up in the morning and say, oh, I know my sin, but I know that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus right now. That's what Jesus prayed. Jesus came to make known the love of God for sinners like us, for sinners who cuss at people, for sinners who yell at their children, for sinners who hate other people, for sinners who are bitter, for sinners who don't want to offer forgiveness to people, for sinners who do awful things that we would all be embarrassed of right now. God loves sinners like us. And he loves sinners like us the same way that he loves his son, Jesus. This is the gospel. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That means that Jesus images forth who God the Father is. And that means that Jesus takes all the guesswork out of it. We don't have to sit around and speculate what God is like. We don't have to guess. All the mystery is removed about who God is fundamentally and foundationally. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So if you see Jesus, you see God. So there's no guessing. There's no hoping. There's no fingers crossed. There's no wishful thinking. There's no biting your fingernails thinking, I just hope he loves me. I just hope he loves me. Jesus has revealed exactly who God is. He is the exact imprint of God the Father. And what is God the Father like? He is love. He is merciful. He doesn't give sinners what they deserve. He is gracious. He gives sinners what they don't deserve. He gives. He's not stingy. He does not hoard. He shares. And so it is out of the Father's love that Jesus is sent forth to be the embodiment of his love, to be the exact imprint of that love, to be the exact representation of his being. And what the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he pours that love into our hearts. He pours that Trinitarian, that eternal Trinitarian love down into our hearts. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 5 is the answer to Jesus' John 17, 26 prayer. I pray that your love would be in them. And what did Jesus say? It's good for me to go away so that the Holy Spirit can come. So the Holy Spirit can pour my love down into your heart. Out of the overflow of his love, God sent his son. And knowing that we are sinners who are prone to wonder and prone to doubt this eternal, perfect, uninterrupted love, knowing that, God sent his spirit to pour his love into our hearts. God the Father knew that we would never, ever, ever be able to comprehend Jesus' love for us, so he sent the Holy Spirit to be a gospel megaphone in our hearts. God knew that we would doubt his love. God knew that we would doubt the gospel. God knew that we would struggle to believe it. God knew that our consciences would not let us rest. God knew that the devil would pull out a long list of our sins. 
God knew that the devil would have a detailed ledger containing all of the horrible things that we have done. And he told me mine this morning. In here, praying right back by that window. He's trying to tell me everything that I've done wrong. And I just said, it is finished. It is finished. And so what did God do? He sent the Holy Spirit to be a gospel megaphone in our hearts. He sent the Holy Spirit to take this megaphone and say, it is finished. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. If you confess with your mouth your sins, you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts so the Spirit could put the spotlight on Jesus so that the Spirit could reveal the Son of God to us. And Jesus, the Son of God, reveals to us what God the Father is like, a God of love. But we all struggle to really believe it, don't we? Do you believe he loves you this morning? Do you really believe that God is love? We all struggle to believe that God is as loving as he says he is. We all struggle to believe that God is as good as he says he is. It's like we think there must be a catch. It's like we expect there to be a lot of fine print if we read it. Then if we read the fine print, we discover that his love is conditioned upon something. Like those TV commercials for those, the medicines that you can take. And you see all that fine print that just goes across the screen real fast. They don't tell you, but if you've got migraines, take their medication and your migraines will go away. But if you read the fine print, it says like your right arm will fall off. So you won't have any more migraines, but guess what? You won't have a right arm. Or, you know, if you take our medication, your migraines will go away, but you'll be numb from the chin down. But you won't have any migraines. Or take our medication and your migraines will go away. You'll, you'll die, but you won't have the migraines anymore. That's how we feel about God's word, about his promises, about his love. It's like there must be some fine print. If I could just pause the commercial and read the fine print of God's promises, he'd say, oh yeah, if I'm good enough, he'll love me. If I'm faithful enough, holy enough, sanctified enough, if I read the Bible enough, if I serve enough, give enough, pray enough, then he will love me. There's no fine print. He loves you. See, we're afraid to have good thoughts of God. John Owen said that. He said, believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God or to see God as good, gracious, tender, kind, and loving. And they think herein they do well. We think we're doing the right thing if we walk around all day and think that God's mad at us. We think we're being spiritual. We think God's ticked off at me. I'm doing the spiritual thing by thinking that way. We think we're doing the right thing, the true spiritual thing, when we think that God is as hard as nails and as mean as a pit bull. Listen, thinking that God does not love you will sap the very life and joy out of you, grace. And these twisted, distorted thoughts will delight Satan, our enemy, to no end. But what effect does thinking like this have on God? When we think that God does not love us, when we think that he is mean, when we think that he's a grinch, 
that he's hard as nails and as mean as a pit bull, that he's a curmudgeon, it will sap our joy and it will delight and please Satan. But what does it do to God? John Owen says this, it is exceedingly grievous to the spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves for eminently the Father himself loves you. Resolve of that, that you may hold communion with him in it and be no more troubled about it. Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing of it. It grieves the Spirit of God when we doubt the love that he has poured into our hearts. But what do we typically do? We doubt his love. We stay away from him when we sin. We all, like, we all act like Adam our, 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 and Eve, our first parents, when we sin. We hide from God. We run from the Father who stands with his arms wide open waiting for us to run to him. He desires us to run to him, to be strengthened by his spirit and strengthened by his son. The last thing that God wants for us is for us to run from him. Please let me say that again. The last thing that God desires for us is for us to run away from him. When we are bogged down with our sin, knowing everything that we've done, think about your week. I know your week was like my week. Things that you regret, words said, thoughts thought, things done, motives, all the sinfulness of your week that you're just like, oh gosh, I hate it. Think about that when you're bogged down by all those things. He wants you to run to him, not away from him. But we will never run to him if we have these hard thoughts of God. I read this a few weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating because I think it's true of all of us. Kelly Capick said this, unfortunately, many Christians often have a distorted view of the heavenly father. We tend to view him as angry and full of wrath toward us. While we imagine Jesus as the one who loves us, the Father is portrayed as full of hesitation toward us, distant at best, furious at worst. It is as if Jesus pleads with the Father to put up with us and to let us live, perhaps even against the Father's desire. We often view Jesus as the kind person of the Trinity with the Father only wanting us punished. Is the Father, in fact, really reluctant to show tenderness toward people? According to John Owen, the whole movement of the biblical drama of redemption points in a different direction. Jesus is not the one who convinces the Father to love us, but rather the Son of God becomes incarnate in light of the Father's eternal and free love toward us. The Father is not at odds with the Son, but rather God the Father is love, and out of his love he sent his Son to die for our sins. While the work of Christ is all important for redemption, it does not make the Father love us, but is rather the outgrowth of God's love. God the Father is love, and this is why he sent Jesus. And this is why the preacher of Hebrews could say that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, his being, his essence, foundationally and fundamentally who he is. Jesus revealed the Father. He revealed exactly who God is, a God of sacrificial love. A God who is outgoing and moves out to save sinners. 
This is how God loves. He gives. And what does he give? Himself. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The proof of God the Father's love was the sending of his son. And the proof of Jesus' love for us was his death on the cross for sinners like us so that sinners like us could be adopted into his family and become God's children. Now what's interesting about this verse here in Ephesians 5 is that the Greek word here for beloved, when he says Paul calls them beloved children. The Greek word here for beloved is the same word that was used of Jesus in Ephesians 1, 6 that we read earlier. And this word beloved refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. An only child. Imagine an only child. And the parents have one object, one child to pour all of their love out upon. That's the word here. That means that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for his one and only son, Jesus, he now has for you, just as if you were his only child. Isn't that not flabbergasting? God loves each of us as if we were his only child. God loves you just as if you were the only child that he ever had. He loves you as if you were his only child that he's been loving for all of eternity. Christian, because you are in union with Christ, God doles out his love and affection and devotion on you right now just as if you were his only child. This is absolutely astonishing. It's amazing and it's why the word gospel means good news. And it's proof that Jesus is God's perfect, uninterrupted, I love you. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, his being, his essence. Jesus is proof of God's perfect, uninterrupted love. And guess what else is proof of his love? The table that is before us today. The Lord's Supper is proof of God's love. The bread and the cup are whispering to us today, Jesus is God's perfect, uninterrupted. I love you. The Lord's Supper is proof of that. And just as God in his grace gave the Holy Spirit to pour his love into our hearts because we are so prone to disbelief, so too the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper to help us. He gave us the Lord's Supper to sustain our faith when it is weak. Rest in that today. Rest in his eternal love. Rest in the gospel truth that God the Father was loving his son in and through the Spirit long before he ever created you. And rest in the gospel truth that God the Father was loving his son in and through the spirit long before he ever created weird creatures with wings and covered with eyes. He has been loving for all of eternity. And this table right here is proof of that. Let's prepare our hearts and let me remind you, don't run from him, run to him. That's what he wants. Let's pray. 
Father, we see the meal that you have set before us on the table, the Lord's Supper. And we know that it's there because we're sinners. And so we ask you to forgive us. We have all broken your law. It's perfect. It's a revelation of who you are. And we have all broken it this week because we're sinners. We have all had hard thoughts of you, struggling to believe that you could love us, God, because we know our sins so well. Forgive us of our sins, Father. Wash us and make us clean. And now as we approach the table and eat and drink, may it sustain our weak faith. May you give us grace to be moved out in loving you and loving others. Grace, Father, to go out on mission and tell people about the God who is love. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.